Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to the third episode of The Weekly Chai, a podcast by Pedro Vigil and Alex Rosas about China and maybe some other things if we ever get around to them. So um, apologies for the delay for this episode. This one was uh, pretty difficult to prepare because it's a very big subject, a very popular subject. Uh, but before we get started with anything, I would like to introduce the concept of the Q&A, which is a feature on Spotify with podcasts, where at the bottom of the episode, if you open up the individual episodes of our podcast on the bottom, you can see there is a Q&A section where we put a question at the bottom of the episode regarding what we discussed, and you can submit your answers through Spotify to us, and um, if uh, you give us something interesting, then maybe we'll uh, share it on the next episode. And also, um, you can follow us at uh, Weekly Chai. So that's at W-E-E-K-L-Y-C-H-A-I. Uh, so you can follow us on Twitter uh, with that handle, and you can send uh, private messages or comment on our posts if you have any questions about uh, this week's episode. And uh, if you send us questions, um, we can feature them at the beginning of the next episode and um, answer them accordingly. And um, so we want to have more interaction between the hosts and the listeners. And uh, this Q&A um, feature on Spotify, I think, uh, is a good thing. And you can also follow us on Twitter and uh, we may open up some more social media accounts as time goes by. And um, maybe Discord, who knows? Yeah, yeah, we'll see. But as of right now, our main um, social media is the Twitter page. And you can also um, leave us answers in the Q&A section of Spotify. And I'm still trying to figure out if Apple Podcasts is something similar to that. So... Um, how are you today, Alex? Oh, wait, I should mention, today is February 9th, and I believe that uh, today is the beginning of the Chinese New Year. Is that right? Yes, we yes. are now in the Year of the Dragon. Yes, we have just entered the Year of the Dragon, which is considered by many people to maybe be the most auspicious year in the Chinese Zodiac calendar, especially... Uh, if you're a male born in the year of the dragon, that is probably the most auspicious year to be born in uh, if you're a man. So congratulations if you won the Zodiac lottery there. And uh, who knows, maybe some of you are having children in the year of the dragon. and uh, You have uh, uh, some little, little dragon babies. Yeah, there's the uh, common uh, Chinese saying, Wangzi Chenglong, which means... Uh, to wish for your son to become a dragon, which is sort of to say that you hope for nothing but the best for your children. So um, being born in the year of the, of the dragon is pretty epic, although um, neither of us was born in the year of the dragon, right? I'm a, I'm a horse. I'm a pig. Oink, oink. Uh, but uh, happy Chinese New Year. Uh, to everybody that's listening to this podcast. And even if you're not listening, I hope you feel my vibrations, my good wishes to all. The vibes are pretty good. Yeah. I can feel and it over here. And Happy New Year to you, Alex. Happy New Year to you. 
Yes. May, and, we have a um, good, may we have a good Year of the Dragon. I think it will be. I think it will I be, too. Will be. Yeah. How are you feeling today? Excited. Yes, you would be. Because today's topic is very exciting. I think most people would agree. <laughs> because today we're talking about trains. Chinese trains, they're all the rage. Everybody's talking about them. Especially high-speed rail or seeing, bullet trains. I've been seeing it all over social media, too. Everybody's talking about it, especially since uh, China's rela relaxed a lot of restrictions on uh, tourists coming to China. Uh, for a lot of people uh, from a lot of different countries, uh, it's much easier to travel to China today, and um, a lot of people are experiencing that. And a lot of people, one of their first uh, big impressions of China is the gargantuan uh, railway network, especially the high-speed railway network that connects basically the entire country. And um, the history of China's railway network is... Um, a complicated one full of twists and turns and i think the you know so today we're going to focus on uh, mainly the high-speed rail network but we're also going to talk about chinese railroads a little bit in general and um so chinese railways got off to a rocky start uh without getting too deep into the the history of it of course the 1800s was the century of humiliation for China when the West overtook the East. And uh, trains were first, of course, developed in, in Western Europe and England and uh, other such places. And the first railways to be built in China were built mainly by foreign interests, uh, imperialists and colonialists that wanted to extract goods, uh, raw materials from China, and to take them back to Europe uh, to use for industrial purposes. And uh, there were some attempts at making uh, native, uh, completely Chinese-engineered railways in the late Qing dynasty. Um, and some of them were uh, partially successful, but they never became a nationwide network because China was just in a very sorry state during that time. And that did not change very much during the period of the Republic of China after the Qing dynasty collapsed from between the years of 1912 and 1949, especially considering the fact that China went through a lot of political tumult, uh, whether it was foreign invasion or internal division between the communists and the nationalists during the Chinese Civil War. So really, uh, work on a proper Chinese national railway network could only begin after the success of the Communist Revolution in 1949. And um, there was a lot of uh, focus on trying to connect China through infrastructure uh, starting from 1949. And, uh, but it really picks up uh, with a lot of speed after the economic reforms, which began in the late 1970s. And China's come a long way in terms of its railway network from basically having almost nothing except for a handful of uh, colonial railways in occupied uh, northern China, to having a network that covers most of, uh, uh, basically all of China's provinces, including um, regions of China that are very difficult to build railway networks to. 
for example, China has the Qinghai-Tibet Plateau, which is the highest region in the world, averaging at around 4,000 meters above sea level. And uh, China uh, finished a railway that goes from uh, from the Chinese interior to Lhasa in 2006. So this was a major feat. So um, anyways, so during the, the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century, there were big advances in connecting China with railways, but things really pick up speed um, in the late and in the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s, and especially with the 21st century. And uh, in particular, we are going to talk about today how China went from having no high-speed rail to having over two-thirds of the world's high-speed rail. And um, so in Chinese, high-speed rail is referred to as gaotie, uh, which literally means high-speed rail. Uh, nothing groundbreaking there. But um, why don't, uh, Alex, you tell, you tell me a little bit about your experiences uh, with high-speed rail in China and, and how that shaped your impressions of the country. I mean, like, China was probably the first country I ever really experienced railroads of any kind, really. Other than, like, some of the railroads you might see at, like, theme parks in the... here, here in the States. So, like, for me, just seeing that sort of, like that sort of level of like railway system was just like mind boggling. Not only that, like how fast, you know, they, they really were. It's like, I've never yeah. gone on anything that fast. It wasn't like an airplane, but like on the ground is just like so different. Yeah. It's, um, I don't think I really had any proper, uh, railway experiences before I went to China either. I mean, I think a handful. Um, I went on a couple of trains between D.C. and Baltimore at one point. Um, but really, I had not ridden on many trains before I went to China, whereas after I went to China, my conception of what a train is and what, what a train could be was completely changed. You know, um, Chinese train stations, they're they're very different from what uh, an American train station might be where it's gigantic, high ceilings and wide open uh, waiting areas, uh, places that look more like an airplane terminal than a traditional train station. Definitely feels like an airport. Like having been yeah. to like having been to Japan, having been to Europe and um, and Taiwan, it's like. They're very small stations compared to yeah. Like, uh, I guess like barring yeah. like the main train station and like maybe in in Taipei or like here in the states, I guess would be Union. Yeah, Chinese like, train stations can be absolutely huge. Yeah, yeah. There's like um the the most maybe the most iconic Chinese train station is the Beijing train station, which is uh, if you ever see it in person. It's huge. I think the the building might be, uh, like at least a two or three hundred feet tall, and like as like a gigantic traditional style uh, Chinese roof on top of it too, and gigantic. And then they're like that one's like one of the original uh, big engineering projects of, of 
China after the Communist Revolution. Whereas if you go in there today, it's it looks a little bit uh, dated because it is from the 1950s. But the new ones that are being built now, like they they have that um, shiny new airport aesthetic for the most part with um, metallic surfaces and was it very it, futuristic looking? Yeah, a lot of them are very futuristic looking, and like if you go in there, the process is very fast, especially. For Chinese citizens, uh, they have um, ID cards that are universal across the country. And it used to be all you need to do is uh, swipe your ID card and then you can go into the train station. Whereas now they even have um, facial recognition. So you don't even have to carry your card with you. Although it's good to have just in case. Yeah. And of course, um, like, of course like foreigners don't have access to this sort of uh, technology. Yeah, Which, I mean, but I guess it's a be, good. Th- yeah. I mean, I guess it's like a good thing too. You know, some foreigners might have like apprehensions from you know, doing anything yeah. related to like facial recognition. So, but it's still very convenient even for a foreigner. Like, yeah, and uh, some people like I remember my Chinese friends would tell me that actually they're jealous of foreigners when they go into the train station because like for Chinese citizens they have to queue, they have to wait in line to go through the turnstiles with either their ID or, or face ID. Whereas with the foreigner, like you just go off to the side and show your passport to the policeman or the security guard and they just sort of wave you in. They don't even really look look at your passport too closely because not all of them can even read English, but that's besides the point. Um, anyways, you get, you get into the train station, it's big, it's um, metallic, very futuristic, and... There's always like you know good stuff in there to eat you know at least a couple of restaurants, sometimes a Starbucks, and um, you know places where you can buy like fanbian uh, ramen noodles that you can uh, you know cook on the train because like the train will have a hot water uh, dispenser where you can use that to make yourself some tea or some instant noodles. You also get so, some of the you also get some of the American classics. You got a at least in the terminal you got a you know, KFC. Yeah. 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 McDonald's but it is Burger Chinese King KFC, which is um better than American KFC. For sure. Yeah, debatable. <laughs> well, American KFC does not have egg tarts for They do not thing. have egg tarts. <laughs> yeah. You're correct about that. But so yeah, usually you have like at least you have options. Yeah, of... two or three options. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Well, usually, yeah. But, uh, but you, it's it's usually like that. At least for like the average station, it's usually like the same amount. The bigger yeah. stations, obviously, they're going to have more. Yeah, but and um, not to digress too much from high speed rail, but I have personally been on a number of sleeper trains in China, and overall, I would say that my experience in those has been pretty good as well. Uh, you know, not as luxurious as high-speed rail, but, you know, if you're not in a rush to get somewhere, uh, if you buy, like, a soft bed uh, ticket, those tend to be pretty comfortable, and uh, you usually have to share, like, a, a room or, like, a bunk with, like, two or three other people, and, hey, it's a good way to meet people, too. I'm, I had quite a few uh, friendly interactions with people, and on sleeper trains, whereas people on um, high-speed rail, they tend to be more, you know, like, business-oriented, you know, like, they're they're not in a mood for, like, a casual chat, you know? Very, very quiet. Yeah. And often the high-speed rail will have its own uh, meal cart, where you can 
go buy food, but it's kind of marked up, so they're always Maybe marked up. Best. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's good to have there in case you know you well, didn't bring food with you, especially for the long hauls. Like yeah, some trains will go on for like eight or nine hours, sometimes yeah. over like a day. So, like having those, having access to those food carts is still very helpful. And like you yeah. don't have time, and like the way the system kind of works, you can't really go back into like a train station, buy some yeah. food at a restaurant, and then go back. Yeah, although there is um. I, the, I would say that a lot of people choose to like, like I mentioned, there's usually a convenience store in the train station. So a lot of people buy something at the convenience store, usually uh, some instant noodles, and they'll prepare that with like the hot water that's available for free yeah. in the train. And there's also, if I remember correctly, like in some uh, Chinese train, like on some of the Chinese trains, you can order delivery food to like your seat when the train is stopped at the train station and that just blows my mind and i've never good. tried it myself but I, I look forward to it one day i might try it when i go back i didn't know about it until like just recently yeah but you know i agree with like in terms of, like the the trains like i normally just do the um the hsrs the yeah G and the, sometimes the d trains yeah, um, they're very quiet, very relaxing. It's not bumpy or anything. It's just very relaxing. It's very, it's very. It's also very spacious. Yeah, like compared to like you know an airplane. You know, airplanes you might be crammed, you be yeah. you know stuck between two people, but like in a in a train, it's very a lot of open space, especially yeah. like like if you're hauling luggage and there's places to put your luggage. It's it's not bad. It's yeah, a good way to just, like see the scenery too. Yeah, high speed rail, high speed trains. They're more, they're smoother. There's no turbulence. Obviously, you can get out of your seat whenever you want to. User um, and the space tends to be a lot more comfortable. So, I Restro think a lot of and also, yeah. and also restrooms too. It's like a, yeah. you have options, especially yeah. like some of the newer trains. You have options to either do the if. You're more comfortable doing uh, the squatty potties. You know, you got a squatty potty, but they also have Western style toilets. Yeah. So overall, um, I think our impressions and pretty much everybody's impression of Chinese rail tends to be very positive. And um, China has a pretty strong train culture in the modern day. Uh, a lot of Chinese people take uh, enormous pride in the railway system and um it's advanced quite a lot in the last uh, 20 years, especially. And uh, in general, I would say that China is more appreciative of the role that trains can play in society as opposed to the United States. Yeah. The United States used to have a, a stronger train culture. Back in the 1800s. Yeah, after all, it was trains that enabled the Pacific coast to link up with the Atlantic coast in the, the mid to late 19th century. But uh, since the mid 20th century, with the rise of the personal automobile, I believe uh, trains have been discarded by a large part of the American population as a m means of transportation. And it's also been um, heavily consolidated to like maybe one or two companies. Definitely one yeah. that I think we all know, it being Amtrak. Amtrak. You know, the one, yeah. of, one of the biggest lobbying groups in Congress to keep... Yeah the system the way it is now 
Yeah. And the other the other lobbying force, I think, would be the automobile industry. Yeah. You know, uh, the, or airline. The big, User yeah. joined your channel. And the airlines, you know, the big manufacturers of cars in Detroit and, you know, the airplane manufacturers that are spread out all across the country, plus the airline industry. Um, they don't want to see trains, uh, you know, competing with them in their territory. It's kind of and, sad, um, too. It's kind of sad, yeah. too. I mean... I remember when I was younger, like there was like a train track right, right close to where I live. And I remember every once in a while, you know, you have the, you know, the, you know, the railroad crossing, you know, sirens go up and you see the train pass. And it was always fascinating just to watch trains move through. And then like today, not today, but like recently I went past that same, uh, that same railroad track and it's no longer there. Yeah. There, there used to be a lot more active train lines in the east coast of Florida too. I mean, one of the one of the big things that enabled Florida's initial development was the East Coast Railway, um, which is pretty important in Florida's history, but um, not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. And I mean, you, um, I mean, you got the at least not recently. You got the the Bright Line. Yeah. Yeah, and I recently I wanted to contrast all of the positive things we've been saying about Chinese railway with uh, my recent experience on the Florida Brightline, which I don't want to. I'm not saying that the Florida Brightline sucks, um, but I, what I am saying is that the Florida Brightline. Um, it's nice that uh, Floridians have another option uh, for going between Miami and Orlando and all those places in between. That is not that is neither driving or flying, but um, this thing that they call high speed rail in Florida, it is not high speed rail according to either Chinese standards or even just international standards in general, because um, the advertised speed for the Brightline is around, I think it, they say it's two hundred kilometers an hour. But um, the distance between uh, Florida, the distance between Orlando and Miami is around 400 kilometers or 230 something miles. And it took about four hours to get from Orlando to Miami. So that's, that speed is closer to maybe 120 kilometers or 80 miles per hour. So that's, uh, you know, the, the definition for high speed rail is um it's a little bit flexible but i think most would agree that uh, in the 21st century the standard is 250 kilometers per hour and that's far below 250 um, i think and i think with me personally because you have experience with like at least the florida railway system i think the other the other places i've really had experience doing uh i guess Doing rail was um, probably Japan was one of them. Uh, you had Europe, and then yeah, Taiwan. Mm. Now Taiwan, yeah, it's very convenient getting through like the train station. Like you don't have to go through security or anything. You just walk in, and you're at the train station. But the trains aren't that fast. They're very mm -hmm. slow. Very very dated. Yeah. Um, punctual, but dated. Yeah. Japan. Yeah, it's very, very fast. I was like, it's probably comparable to you know what you see in, in China. It's very convenient to get in, but it's expensive. 
And um, and then there's Europe. I think you and I both have experience with that, or it's like it's neither fast or convenient. Yeah, uh, that's all a blur to me. But you know, I don't remember it being particularly fast. It's not really I mean, fascinating either. Yeah, I didn't find it too fast. I I don't want to be seen as trashing on Europe. We love you, Europe. Please don't unsubscribe from us for trashing your your railway system. Also, um, worth noting that the Florida Brightline price is between eighty and a hundred uh, U.S. dollars. So, uh, for a train that goes only one hundred twenty kilometers per hour and makes the distance between Orlando and Miami in four hours, eh, you know, I've heard a lot of people saying that it's just not worth it for them because if you have to pay eighty to a hundred dollars per person, especially if it's a family. Maybe it's not such a big deal if you're you're single or whatever, but if it's a family of four that's between like three hundred and twenty to four hundred dollars for a one way trip, so that's I something know. else to consideration. Like I know before we had a uh, at least talks at least in a, a more national level about you know, introducing like Japan style uh, high-speed trains. I think they were actually in talks with the Japanese government and bringing the Shinkansen over to uh, you know, to America for, you know, America's own railway development, but that was, like, shot down by Congress, basically. There was no political mm-hmm. will to do it. And would have yeah. linked up Florida with, like, the rest of, like, the East Coast. Yeah, and it's, um... America is a different kind of political system from China. It's a federal system where a lot of power is dispersed to the states, and that probably also is a big impediment to building a national system for uh, basically anything, uh, including rail. But um, let's talk about the history of China's high-speed railway system. And to really talk about that, we we have to... talk a little bit about where does high-speed rail come from. The original high-speed rail comes from Japan. It was the first uh, Japanese high-speed rail. Uh, The name for Japanese high-speed rail is called Shinkansen. And the first Shinkansen was established in the mid-1960s, 1964. And uh, pretty quickly after Japan implements their first high-speed rail, the idea becomes very popular in Europe, and uh, France, Germany, and Italy become especially invested in implementing their own high-speed rail systems and then connecting them throughout Europe. So uh, it used to be that high-speed rail was almost completely in, in Europe and Japan, just those two regions of the world and nowhere else. Uh, the original Shinkansen uh, ran at a speed of about 220 kilometers per hour, and um, Germany and France and Italy they they eventually caught up and implemented their own systems. So, in uh, 19 in the late 1970s, China was embarking on their economic reforms, which uh, that's a big subject in and of itself. But um, a big part of that was a diplomatic outreach and reaching out to countries with which China had been estranged since the communist revolution of course i'm I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the story with uh, nixon going to china and the american rapprochement with uh, china but 
uh, for China in the 1970s and 1980s. Besides the United States, the second most important country uh, for developing uh, diplomatic relations was Japan, uh, because uh, in many ways Japan was seen as um, an example from which China can study. Uh, and in particular, uh, Deng Xiaoping, who was the leader of China during this time and uh, the architect for uh, China's early economic reforms, uh, he visited Japan um, in October of 1978, and he rode on a Japanese Shinkansen, and uh, he remarked that it felt like uh, this uh, J Japanese high-speed train was sort of pushing China to go faster, and that China should eventually develop their own system of high-speed rail. If Japan could do it, then why not China? That was his thought. So in the 1980s, uh, following this visit, uh, China begins upgrading their railway system, but it's still uh, far below uh, the Japanese standard of that time. But they begin increasing the overall speeds of Chinese trains by 20 kilometers, 30 kilometers, even 50 kilometers per hour. Uh, finally, it gets to the point in the 1990s where the, there are the first serious discussions of developing a high-speed rail network in China. And there's a lot of debate about this. And the two uh, biggest controversies uh, of this debate were, number one, is China too poor to have high-speed rail? And number two, if China is to have high-speed rail, what kind of HSR should it be? Uh, because there were two uh, technologies that were available, and one of them was traditional rail, and the other one was maglev. And um, maglev technology is uh, principally a German technology, and um, it involves magnetic levitation, and it's a kind of train where the train and the track do not actually physically touch each other, and it's a uh, very high tech, and it can achieve very high speeds, faster than traditional HSR, uh, in the neighborhood of 400 kilometers per hour, as opposed to uh, traditional HSR, uh, which was more popular in Japan, as opposed to uh, maglev, which is a German technology. And uh, Japanese HSR and, and French and Italian promise speeds of at least 250 within the, the window uh, between 250 kilometers per hour to 300 kilometers per hour. And there was a lot of debate about this back and forth. And uh, there was a maglev line, a magnetic levitation high-speed rail line that was implemented in Shanghai, which was an attempt at basically a trial run, a trial run for maglev in China. Uh, involving a German company, and this maglev technology was proprietary technology of uh, this German company, uh, Siemens. And um, so the line, the maglev line, was successfully implemented in Shanghai. However, it was not a roaring success. Uh, it worked, it, it was safe, and it was commercially viable, but only in this particular area, uh, which went from the eastern part of Shanghai to the western part of the Shanghai. And the company that uh, controlled the maglev technology did not want to give this technology to China for them to implement it themselves. They're very protective of their 
intellectual property and, and they didn't want to share it with any other country, especially China. So the other thing is that maglev was um, prohibitively expensive to build on a nationwide scale, especially when uh, the company that controlled the rights to the IP of maglev did not want to share it with China. And uh, China was very adamant that uh, in the implementation, in the construction of a high-speed railway network in China, that technology transfer was a non-negotiable principle, meaning that China wanted for uh, these foreign companies that developed HSR to transfer their technology which uh, they kept under wraps uh, as sort of a company secret to China. So that way, in the long term, China can develop their own high-speed rail and implement it on their own without having to constantly pay fees to uh, foreign companies for their, uh, for their technology and to eventually adapt it uh, to China. And um, they, put, they, they put out a bid and they uh, allowed companies from the countries which had developed high-speed railway networks to make bids in order to participate in the construction of China's high-speed railway network. And of course, the condition meant that they would have to transfer their uh, high-speed rail technology to a Chinese company, which would then build the track under supervision, uh, consulting with representatives from the respective companies. And the ones, the companies that answered the call for the bid included um, Kawasaki of Japan, Siemens of Germany, and Alstom of France. And um, these companies were very hesitant about transferring their technology to China um, because um, those technologies are sort of the core of their business model. And if they were to give it to other countries or other companies, then you know they might be able to compete with them in the long run. And um, China, in theory, could have developed their own uh, completely native high-speed railway and uh, high-speed technology, uh, but they figured that it would be faster to purchase this technology from a foreign company and then localize it. That was their long-term goal, was to take, the t- take a technology from a foreign company, legally, of course, you know, no IP theft or anything like that, no claims of that could be made because they paid a pretty big price for the technology. But they would take the technology from a foreign company um, through a technology transfer legally and then begin for, uh, working on that original foundation. And uh, the allure of the Chinese market, which was, of course, bigger than any other market in the world, for railways or basically any product or service, was too strong for these foreign companies to resist. So Kawasaki, Siemens, Alstom, and some other companies, they all decided to go all in on the Chinese railway network um, and participating in it. And um, the first high-speed railway line to be built in China was the Beijing to Shanghai uh, line. And uh, this, the construction for it began in uh, 2008. Um, I think it's important to to go back for a second. So we were talking about the debate between maglev and uh, traditional uh, high-speed rail. So traditional high-speed rail, the the main 
advantage of it is that it can be implemented on existing traditional railway uh, systems. And this is the kind that's uh, popular in Japan and uh, France and, and uh, other places with high-speed rail. And um, that means that it's pretty easy to take trains that are high-speed and put them onto existing track and convert that track into high-speed rail. And uh, because the German company that developed Maglev did not want to share the technology with uh, China for Maglev, and it was exorbitantly expensive too, um, China decided to go with traditional high-speed rail. So that's important to keep in mind. So all these foreign companies went in on the Chinese market and began to help China in developing its first high-speed railway network and high-speed trains. And uh, the first line was the Beijing to Shanghai line, which is about 1,300 kilometers uh, long. And uh, the budget was originally supposed to be around 120 billion Chinese yuan, uh, but it ended up ballooning to over 200 billion. So it was uh, rather expensive, and a lot of people were nervous about this, both inside and outside of China. People were not sure if this could work out in a country like China. And um, the construction of the of the Beijing to Shanghai line took about uh, 36, 38 months, which was faster than many people had anticipated. And uh, most people would consider it to be a huge success because before the implementation of high-speed rail, uh, the commute between uh, Beijing and Shanghai, which are the two largest cities in China and the two most important cities of, of China, Beijing being the capital and Shanghai being the main economic hub of China. Uh, so the commute used to be about 14 hours from Beijing to Shanghai. And with the completion of the Beijing-Shanghai high-speed railway line, that 14 hours went down to uh, five hours. And as of 2024, that uh, has gone down to f about four and a half hours. Uh, so the, uh, the completion of the Beijing to Shanghai line was in 2011. So uh, three years later, you have China's first high-speed railway line. And the uh, Beijing-Shanghai railway line has about 200,000 people that ride it uh, day in and day out. So it, uh, it even became profitable even after five years of operation. So this became the blueprint for all the subsequent railway lines, uh, high-speed railway lines in China. And um, key to all of this is, of course, central government planning, which is, um, which is probably one of the biggest differences between the Chinese model of things and the American model of things, because the central government uh, has a very top-down approach when it comes to these infrastructure projects, and that means that they'll determine uh, how, where, uh, and when lines will be built across China. And um, it's all controlled uh, centrally through the China Railway Corporation, which is a, a state-owned enterprise. And um, the original long-term goal of the development of the high-speed railway network was to have something called four verticals and four horizontals. 
meaning that there would be four lines that go from north to south and four lines that go east to west. However, uh, the speed of the construction of the, the HSR network uh, far exceeded the original expectations, and the four verticals, four horizontals, became eight verticals and eight horizontals. So in China right now, there is there are eight lines that go from north to south, and eight lines that go from the east coast to the western interior. So it's gone to the point now where China went from having zero high-speed rail in the year 2010 to having over two-thirds of the global total of high-speed railways, uh, which is a number in excess of 45,000 kilometers. And there are billions of riders every year. And um, most people would consider it a, a very impressive success story. And um, another thing to note is that, uh, like I mentioned earlier, there was collaboration with foreign companies at the start of this process. But very quickly, China went from collaborating, uh, cooperating with foreign companies like Kawasaki and Siemens to basically doing everything on their own. Because within the span of uh, one to two years, Chinese engineers had, um, after purchasing the technology, after the Chinese state purchased the technology from these foreign companies, Chinese engineers, they studied it very thoroughly, they researched it, and uh, they mastered it, and they began to adapt it to China because the existing high-speed railway technology from France, from Germany, from Japan was mostly uh, adapted to the geographies of those countries, which tend to be pretty mild in comparison to China, which is huge and has many different terrains and biomes. So uh, pretty soon after the technology transfer took place, Chinese engineers, they mastered the technology and began adapting it uh, to China's unique conditions. So the earlier trains uh, that are called the Harmony Line, those were the ones that were built under supervision of uh, foreign engineers from Japan, Germany, and France. But uh, pretty soon, uh, within three to four years after the Harmony Line went into operation, the Fuxing Line, uh, or the Rejuvenation Line, uh, was designed uh, completely by Chinese engineers. And they have built upon the foundation of the original technology transfer. So it used to be that the window for speed of the original high-speed uh, trains was between 250 kilometers to 300. But now the window, uh, the, the minimum maximum, is more like minimum of 300 kilometers per hour, maximum of 350 kilometers. And within the next couple of years, we're going to start seeing that the window is going to shift even more from 350 to 400, 400 being the maximum. So there are huge advances taking place in high-speed railway technology now. And um, uh, something else that's worth noting is the price system, which uh, the prices for high-speed rail has been relatively stable over the last uh, 10 years, but there was uh, a pretty major reform in prices in the year 2020 when, for the first time uh, in history, uh, the ticket prices for Chinese trains were allowed to fluctuate. It used to be that they were all fixed and they would be the same every day, all day, year round. Um, so now they are allowed to fluctuate, but 
uh, it's important to note that there's a, a minimum price and a maximum price. So it's not completely marketized. It's not like, let's say, uh, plane, uh, plane ticket prices in most countries, which are basically allowed to go you know, from dirt cheap all the way to exorbitantly expensive. Whereas um, there's sort of like maybe a 20, uh, you know, let's say a t uh, prices for a second class seat can go uh, from a, a baseline price to maybe 10, 15% more expensive during peak seasons. Um, so one example I got here is the price for the, the aforementioned Beijing-Shanghai line in 2011 cost about 550 yuan, whereas um, I just looked up a price for a train uh, tomorrow, which it's at 650 yuan in the year 2024. So prices have gone up, and now they're allowed to fluctuate a little bit, but it's important to note they're, they're not completely marketized. And um, that, that did result in some, uh, some negative feedback from, from some users of the, the railway network, and um, I think uh, you can elaborate on that a little bit more. So, so like some of my friends were somewhat displeased or rather surprised that the costs of the train weren't what they were used to, you know. For some of my friends, like the prices of the trains haven't changed since since they're in elementary school, and so to see that sort of shift was was rather sudden for them. And I think, in their opinion, it kind of, in a way, does harm some of the people in the lower like income brackets. So there is some concern over over that. Yeah. And I think especially in during times where there might be like massive, you know, like, uh, how do you say, a lot of traffic moving through, I think right. you might see like right major now. Like right now, we might see a... Yeah, right now we're in the middle of the Chunyun, which is sort of the high, the, the high point of any Chinese travel year where tons of people are, you know, flocking to go back home. So this is the time when prices will uh, rise. Rise, yep. Yeah. It didn't they didn't use to rise because there was no fluctuation in price whatsoever. But now there is some fluctuation. Although like I said, there is a, a cap to that fluctuation. So it's not as exorbitant as let's say in America around Thanksgiving or Christmas. Flight prices will go up by I don't know exactly how much, but like it'll be double or even triple. Triple yeah. what they usually are. But it, and, it is, um, it is for at least for some of our friends, they just a worrying trend. Yeah, for, especially for something that's like a public service. Yeah, yeah. But um, overall, um, I think um, the Chinese uh, high-speed railway um development has been a, a very big success story, and. That is a tribute to the organizing capability of the Chinese state as well as the uh, capacity of the Chinese engineers and workers that made this whole network possible. And um, there are definitely some things to look forward to in the future in terms of new train technologies that are uh, maybe in their researching and development stages that perhaps uh, you know a little bit more about, Alex. Yep, so they haven't completely disregarded the implementation of like 
maglev technology um though i think more of that research is being more directed towards i guess a newer form um here in the west we kind of know it as like elon's uh hyperloop project whereas china is developing something of a similar capacity like almost like their version of like the hyperloop which is expected to at least reach speeds up to a thousand kilometers per hour, which is incredibly fast. And they plan to at least have one in an operation, I think around 2030, 2035, definitely around 2035. It's in kind of the early stages of like research and development, but you know, this is like, I guess newer technologies that need to be explored and, you know, the safety implications, uh, implications of it which is like very similar to like what we're kind of seeing here i guess with like elon's hyperloop whether or not it's like safe to use or not all of this what sort of uh, concerns are there and i think they're working with at least with china they're working with once again with siemens in terms of like how this technology gets implemented so yeah yeah the 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 german specialization for maglev is pretty strong even though um like like i mentioned earlier the maglev didn't really take off in china because it was so expensive and they were uh more protective of their ip um and it's also important to note that uh, it hasn't really taken off in anywhere else in the world either no. like the shanghai maglev is the only commercially viable uh, maglev that's been going strong for about 20 years now but it never it hasn't developed into anything else yet but like you said china's looking back into maglev you know 20 years ago they decided that maglev just wasn't for china but maybe the 2020s and the 2030s might see china uh re looking looking at maglev from a different perspective now that they have a mature traditional hsr network and they have more experience in building infrastructure like this and like i would assume too especially with this sort of like technology being implemented i mean it'll probably be very limited depending on like what is like the highest traffic area that usually takes the longest like even kind of like what we see now right you know yeah you still have access to like the high speed trains but you also have access to like even the slower trains if need be so having that sort of option is kind of it's pretty good my opinion and yeah <laughs> it's uh probably one of the more exciting i think developments that are coming out is this uh yeah this what new hyperloop concept what would be the speed uh for these potential new forms of maglev because i've been seeing some crazy numbers at least a thousand kilometers maybe yeah. in the lower end maybe 800 to 900 yeah. but i think they're looking around around a thousand which is insane so three times almost like three times uh the speed of like the current trains which are already fast as it is yeah and a thousand kilometers is about in the neighborhood of the speed of a passenger jet jet yep yeah and the other the other good thing about you know these electronically powered trains is that they're not as uh, consuming of petroleum and the their energy source can come from a variety of uh from a variety of different materials it doesn't have to be powered by petroleum so that's also a good way of 
implementing a more uh, ecologically sustainable uh, infrastructure network. And um, I Mm -hmm. think um, that overall, it's hard to deny that China's experiment with high-speed rail uh, is a resounding success. And um, I think we can look forward to more breakthroughs coming uh, from China, including Chinese cooperation with um, foreign companies such as as uh, 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 Siemens, like you mentioned before. And um, so I think that about uh, wraps up our discussion of the history of the development of Chinese HSR. And um, I think the question that I will pose to our listeners is, do you believe that uh, the Chinese HSR uh, development could be implemented in America? Do you think that China, do you think that America could ever have a high-speed railway network in the same way that China does? Um, I'm sure you have your answer, Alex. Uh, <laughs> it's very hard to first. say. I mean, it, it, I mean, I will, I'll, I'll answer first. first. So you go ahead, go, go ahead. <laughs> uh, short answer, no. Long answer, no. <laughs> no. Would you Would you like to elaborate? I think like I kind of agree in a sense. Like one of the biggest barriers to america implementing well there's multiple barriers actually but one of the biggest barriers is the political one the fact that there is not the political will in congress or organizational capability or organizational i mean you know you you buy out you know construction companies to build out a uh, high-speed rail they probably build it but there's also a lot of other factors to kind of keep in mind that are also political in a sense. And one of the things, which I mean, it's, I guess, altruistic in, in a sense, you know, want to be mindful of this. One of the biggest barriers, I guess, in California's attempt to do high speed rail is um, environmental concerns. You know, a lot of, a lot of the cost overruns usually are a result of you know having to do a lot of testing a lot of ecological testing of like what is the impact that this high-speed rail will cause to you know local communities local ecosystems so um that tends to carry a political aspect to it and then once you know other states whether it's Republican or democrat and once they see these cost overruns there's less of a will to really invest in these sorts of like high speed rails, so it's it's an unfortunate. Yeah you're, yeah, you're talking about California right now. We talked about Florida earlier. I think it's important to note that in both of these cases, these are projects at the state level, yep. uh, main mainly put forth well, by private corporations. There was, as I said earlier, there was an attempt. At least, I think during the Obama administration, where they wanted to introduce basically the Shinkansen style line. I think they were having support from the Japanese government to build it. And that was shot down due to political concerns. You know, I don't think Georgia or Florida really agreed to having that. And they were really concerned about just 
the price tag, even though it would have been paid for, paid for by you know what was already you know allocated by Congress at the time, but they just didn't, they just didn't want it. Yeah, yeah. Well, like a yeah, like we mentioned earlier, there's there are too many uh, private interests that go against the concept of having affordable high-speed rail available for everybody, whether it's airlines or car manufacturers or Amtrak. There's a lot of, yeah. There's a lot of will going against it more so than will going for it. And, uh, all of these currently existing or, um, in the development stage projects, they're all at the state level. And, uh, so in theory, even if Florida's, uh, high-speed railway system improves and it gets better and maybe they become faster or whatever it'll still just be a florida railway network yeah it will not be incorporated into a larger nationwide network whereas the chinese uh, model for it was a top-down thing where uh at the top of the upper echelons of the chinese uh, government and the party there were years of discussion about um the implementation of high-speed rail railway and then they came to a conclusion that yeah we're going to build an hsr network that covers the whole country we're going to start with beijing and shanghai and then we're going to build a whole bunch of other railways that go north to south east to west and they're going to go over uh basically all of the provinces and basically it's a top-down approach that could only happen in china because they have um you know, a very particular socialist political system that emphasizes the idea of democratic centralism where there will be debate and discussion of idea, you know, at, at various levels of society, and that'll go all the way up to the top. But once the the top level of the political leadership decides something, then they will uh, mobilize the entire Chinese state at all of its levels to implement the political will of the party center, which um, nothing like that exists in China and most uh, most countries around the world, although there might be some exceptions. Although I guess it's a fair argument to say that in the case of the United States, if there is political will, and that's like the big if, the big if, right? If there's political will, they will do it. You know, that sort of like massive project you're saying, you know, with, you know, high speed rail in China, that kind of occurred in the United States with the interstate uh, highway system yeah. under Dwight D. Eisenhower, that he had yeah. the political will to do it. There were concerns about, you know, the sovereignty of like, I guess, a, I guess you call it like pseudo sovereignty of like certain states, you know, which should be doing state rights versus like, you know, the federal government. But eventually, they managed to build out the federal highway system, but it required the political will. Yeah. And Dwight D. Eisenhower was a popular president. So, Yeah, so even uh, in theory, even in a federal system, something like this can happen. But the federal, federal political systems tend, they have a tendency towards decentralization. Yes. And maybe in the 1950s, when World War II was such a, a fresh memory and... During World War II, uh, the United States probably became more centralized than it ever was in its history, much more top-down than it ever was before and probably ever will be. You know, there was still that capacity to think in terms of nationwide construction projects that would link up the entire country, 
Whereas here we are in the 2020s. It's been many decades since uh, the federal government took, you know, had ambitious, big nationwide projects like that. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine America mired as it is in neoliberalism and uh, federalism uh, to take on a project like this on a national level. It just well, won't happen. I just say that it's more the result of like political polarization. It gave, like I said, it's like if there's will to do it, you know, I think yeah. the country would do it, but there's just no will. And with you know the population being highly polarized as it is, I don't really see it happening. At least in this decade, maybe next as decade, maybe the following decade, but I don't really see it in this decade. As far as I can tell, there seems to be only one uniting thing for most Americans, and that that uniting thing is that China is scary. That seems to be the only thing that brings people together in this country anymore. I cannot imagine America coming together for a positive, constructive goal, but I am willing to be proven wrong, and uh, maybe I even hope to be proven wrong. I would like to see America implement uh, nationwide infrastructure projects that would improve the lives of tens of or even hundreds of millions of people so uh we will see we will see but um um yeah i mean there's a lot of reason to be pessimistic about that but in any case we will pose the question to all of you and i encourage you um to look at the uh the spotify episode and answer the question uh below the episode description do you think uh, HSR can be implemented in America like it was in China. So I encourage you to put your answers into Spotify. And uh, if you have any questions about this week's episode or even the previous episodes, uh, you can comment them on our social media, on our on our Twitter page, or even send us a private message on the Twitter page at at weekly chai at w e e k l y c h a i and um, I think that about does it for this episode. And did you um, want to tease what next episode will be about? Ooh, one of my favorite topics, one that I've uh, researched quite a bit. Um, artificial intelligence. Yeah, one of Steven Spielberg's most underrated films. Very underrated. I actually enjoyed it, personally. Yeah. And do you also enjoy... Artificial intelligence, the concept. Yes. Like, I'm always a fan of, uh, for me, it has like that sci fi kind of aspect to it, but it's like, yeah. it's really developing really quick. And China's become like a superpower in that aspect. And so, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that in we'll depth. Yeah, very much um, in depth. On the next episode of the Weekly Chai. And again, I, I must emphasize, I must reiterate, Xin Yan Kwai Le Gong Shi Fa Cai Long Nian Da Ji. Happy Chinese New Year, Happy Year of the Dragon to everybody. May you all have a very auspicious Year of the Dragon. Yeah. Nothing but blessings for you. Exactly. That was the Weekly Chai with Pedro and Alex.